0: Yeah, so like Justin said, we're in the book of Hebrews this morning, and uh, so if you don't have a Bible, just go ahead and raise your hand, and Matt will go ahead and uh, get, that, we'll get one of those to you. And if you don't have one, feel free to keep it. That's our gift to you. You can just go ahead and take that home. <clears throat> How many of you cringe when you pick up your, your phone and you, and you look at it, usually in the morning, and it says, update available? I know I do, because it's not just available, it's kind of mandatory. Because as much as you try to ignore it, it keeps coming back and says, update available, do you want to update now? And I always find it kind of annoying. Because it sometimes feels like an update is a step back rather than a step forward. Or it just seems like a pointless waste of time, because I don't really notice anything different in the performance of my phone after the update. And I think sometimes even, does my phone actually run slower now that it's updated? And I won't be able to do things the way I used to. They've changed all the features I liked and added others that I really don't like. And sometimes these changes are just simple improvements. But because we are creatures of habit, we're more content with familiarity for the sake of avoiding change than we are with improvement. And when this happens, we can delude ourselves saying the old version of things was fine. It's passable. It's good enough. Maybe even better. Well, this morning, we're going to continue our series in the book of Hebrews. And as Justin said last week, this book is all about Jesus being better, the supremacy of Jesus. And whatever you think of, at the end of the day, at the end of your days, when every knee is bowing before Jesus, that glorious fact is going to remain Jesus is better. To the Jews to which Hebrews was written, they were wrestling in the same way that, that we can sometimes wrestle. They had you know, two kind of opposing ideas. You know, They got an update on their faith and they were torn. They were torn between these two things. A lifetime of practice and ritual and the saving message of the gospel. A struggle between that which they were comfortable with and the understanding that the gospel message is, is better than the law. For the Jewish converts of the book of Hebrews, the old way still had a lot of appeal. It was familiar. It's what they knew. And they needed to be shown that their law, that old way, did not have the power and the appeal of Jesus. But rather, that law, that old way, it pointed to Jesus. It was not there to save them. It was there to point to Jesus. And so the author of Hebrews goes to great lengths to show over and over and over again that Jesus is better. So let's go ahead and zoom in on one aspect of that misunderstanding that these uh, Jewish converts had. They needed to be shown that Jesus was God and that he was superior to the angels. Our focus is on Hebrews 1, 4-14, which reads, Having become, and this is speaking about Jesus being one with God and sitting at the right hand of the Father. Having become... As much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all God's angels worship him. Of the angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, his ministers a flame of fire. But of the son... Like a garment, they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation? Pray with me if you will. Our good and heavenly Father, we just ask that in the upcoming minutes, that you would just illumine our hearts to your word. Make us people of your word. Make us people under your word. Show us the good things in your word that we might walk in an upright manner with you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So looking at this, <clears throat> uh, just kind of structurally, verse 4 states the premise of the author's argument, the degree to which Jesus is better. He's superior than the angels. And then the next 10 verses are his supporting arguments for verse 4. And it seems that the Jewish converts were in danger because they were thinking that the angels were on the same level as Jesus. You know, by elevating their view of angels, they were actually minimizing their view of the greatness of Christ. Let me say that again. By elevating the view of angels— They were minimizing their view of the greatness of Christ. So this put them in danger of drifting, drifting from the truth of the gospel. And no matter what you can think of in terms of dangers in the Christian walk, drifting has to be one of the most dangerous things for a Christian. You know, this is like if you've ever been on a boat on a lake And and you're fishing and you're in the middle of the lake or something and you're you're talking with your friends and you're not really paying attention and the boat is not anchored and it's warm and the, the waves are lapping up against the boat and it's just very relaxing. But you do that long enough and you look up and suddenly you can be all the way across the lake and you didn't even notice it happening. And so for a Christian, drifting isn't this sudden, all of a sudden, thing happening. It's a, it's a slow, non-alarming process. It's gradual. It's little compromises here and there that lead to bigger compromises that can leave you unequipped and unable to recognize a false gospel. And so while we may not necessarily be in danger because of our understanding about angels or the Mosaic law, there is a very real and present danger to Christians to us, to sojourn, there's a real danger in drifting because of everything in our lives. If something else is there and it's looking a little bit better than Jesus, it can cause you to drift. And so for us this morning, we're going to look at this passage using the old traditional wedding rhyme, something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue, I know, cheesy. <laughs> this wedding rhyme is, is said to represent the things that a bride needs for a successful marriage. You know, something, something old is said to be continuity with the past. Something new is optimism for the future. Something borrowed is said to be borrowed happiness. And something blue is said to represent faithfulness, fidelity, and love. And so with no small amount of poetic license, this will be our, our points for this morning. Something old, something new, something borrowed, something blue. And in this passage, we see a clear presentation of something old, something new. As I've said, the Jewish believers were slipping in that understanding. They were tempted to rely on the old law, that Mosaic covenant, a law and a system that was given by angels. And that's right. The Jews held the angels in such high regard Because the angels were right up there in heaven. And those very angels came down and they gave the law to the Jews. The Jews held them in that high regard because they were God's messengers. They were the ones that God used to give his people the law. And we see this in Galatians and in Acts. Galatians reads, Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. And again, in Acts, where Stephen is about to be stoned, he's rebuking his um, oppressors, the people that are about to stone him. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. From these verses, we know that the angels gave the law to the Jews. And it isn't that the law was bad. It's that something better came along. And the Jewish believers were wanting to follow Jesus and the old law, holding both with that same regard, that same reverence. But they should have been holding on to Jesus alone. And I think it's safe to say that they didn't fully appreciate the Old Testament, that it completely, utterly, and totally points to Jesus. We don't get to go out and eat a lot, um, mostly because we just like to stay at home but when my wife and I do go out to eat, we like to go to Coastal Flats. And so just about everything there is delicious. Um, And when I go, I don't really need a menu. I know exactly what I want. I want the drunken ribeye with the upgrade to the uh, spiced pecan salad with warm goat cheese. And and usually, though, I'll look at the menu anyways, because sometimes they have something interesting on there. Um, But how crazy would it be if we went to Coastal Flats and I was like, yeah, I'll take the ribeye but I want to keep the menu because I think, you know, the menu is going to also satisfy me. That's crazy. You know, thinking that the menu is going to help me with my hunger. But that's what the Jews in the book of Hebrews were doing. By not appreciating the Old Testament, the law, appreciating that it points to Jesus, it's like they were thinking that a menu in a restaurant is going to feed them and sustain them, when all in reality that menu does is just point to the food that's going to be coming out. And so when the food comes out, they don't want to give their menus to the waiter, but would rather hold on to them because they think that that menu is going to satisfy them along with the food. They were drifting back into the old traditional rites and ceremonies, hanging on to the law given by angels. And this misunderstanding causes drifting, which causes huge problems. In the next few weeks, we're going to go through the rest of the book of Hebrews and we're going to hear more about these specific problems. But I just want to glance at some of them, just in a nutshell, what it is that this drifting can cause. It can lead to a drifting away from the faith, a hardening of their hearts because they are not holding firm to the confidence in Christ. And this, in turn, can lead to unbelief and a turning away. Their growth can be stunted, and they're not going to be progressing in the faith as they should be. They're drinking milk when they should be eating meat, they're going to be at a loss for fellowship which for the Christian is a lifeline that keeps us grounded and secure. And these are just some of the problems facing these Jewish believers. And sadly, these problems were brought upon them by their own understanding. The crux of the problem was what they were drawn away from. Sojourn. The problem was what they were drawn away from. They were drawn away from Jesus. Jesus is so much better, better than anything. And if anything gets in between them and Jesus, it's going to be a problem. And it's going to lead to problems and they're going to be drawn away. And so knowing that they needed to be encouraged to persevere, the author of Hebrews makes an argument to them. And it's a zinger because the author doesn't just come up and say, you're wrong, do what I say. No, he, he rather, he reasons with them. He uses the Old Testament to prove his point. He's using that which they venerate to prove his point. If you do a word count of this text and determine how many of the words come from direct quotes from the Old Testament, 70% of this, 70% is from the Old Testament. And the author of Hebrews saw Jesus not just in the Old Testament time or the New Testament times, but on the pages of the Old Testament as well. But to his audience, the Jews of Hebrews, while the Old Testament was always there, they always had it, they always revered it, they just couldn't see it, maybe the way that they were supposed to. They didn't have the eyes to see it. And it's like the color blue. Bear with me. If you don't have a name for it, you won't see it. As, as odd as that's going to sound, the notion that a particular hue is blue, the attachment of a label blue to a hue, a color, is a relatively new notion in the history of mankind. If you examine the texts of antiquity, the mention of the color blue is noticeably absent. And knowing this, researchers set out to answer the question. Just because there's no word for it, does that mean that they didn't see it? And so a psychologist from London worked with the Himba tribe from Namibia. And what set this tribe tribe apart was that they had no word for the color blue and there was no real distinction between blue and green. And here's what the article said. To test whether that meant that they couldn't actually see blue, he showed them a circle with 11 green squares and one painfully obvious blue square. Well, obvious to us, at least. But to the Himba tribe, they struggled to tell which of the squares was a different color to the others. The conclusion of that study was that until a culture has a word for the color blue, they don't see it. Or to put another way, they still see it as we do, it's just that they never really notice it. And so for something old, something new, the Old Testament and the New Testament, Jesus is everywhere in the Bible. The whole Bible is about Jesus. It points to him. It talks about him. The disciples on the road to Emmaus saw this the berean jews saw this and the readers of hebrews were shown this and when they realize this it's like that that aha moment in the movies like in usual suspects or sixth sense you know all those little clues that you see throughout the movie and then all of a sudden everything comes together and it's crystal clear like blue in the ocean and in the sky, the Old Testament proclaims Jesus. And when you see this, you can understand the joy and the wonderment of the disciples on the road to Emmaus when they exclaimed, Didn't our hearts burn within us? I love that. In the Old Testament, you can find the glory of Jesus, his lordship and his supremacy, but it isn't always perceived. You know, like a people who can't see blue because they don't have a word for it, the author of Hebrews used the Old Testament to give that word so that they could see something that was always there. Jesus in the Old Testament. The supremacy of Jesus. And they need this because to not see the total supremacy of Jesus is to throw off your anchor and set yourself adrift. You know, we can never understand the Old Testament without the New, and we can't understand the New without the Old. The Old Testament points to a Savior that is coming. The new points to a Savior that has come. And the good news is that they both point to that same Savior, that same person, Jesus of Nazareth. And so it makes complete sense that the author of Hebrews takes something old and shows it to them as something new, something that they've been missing all along. And so drawing from the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews begins to show that beyond a shadow of a doubt that, the sheer awesomeness, and the all-consuming, transcendent worth of Jesus. And so let's take a moment to go through these reasons, his his support for his main argument, and see how he does this. The author is basically saying, okay, you want to know how awesome he is? Let me tell you. You know, you understand God's name to be superior to the angels? Well, as superior as God's name is to the angels, that's how superior Jesus is to the angels. Oh, and by the way, Jesus is also an heir of that name. The author writes this about Jesus. Jesus is as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. Wayne Grudem writes, In the Bible, a person's name is a description of his or her character. Likewise, the names of God in scripture are various descriptions of his character. So to say that Jesus is an heir means he shares in that name. It's to say that Jesus is God. There's power in the name of God, in the name of Jesus. There's no other name that can ever save us. Isaiah says, bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Everyone, that name, that same name that calls us from afar, from the ends of the earth, that very name saves us. And that is the name of Jesus. Angels? We only know a couple names of angels in the Bible. And they are not heirs of salvation. Nobody is saved in the name of an angel. Only Jesus, who was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, only he has that powerful name. And so the author continues. And again, when he brings the firstborn Jesus into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. Jesus is also better than the angels because he is actually worshipped by the angels. Angels don't worship each other. They don't worship anything else but God. They only worship God. And if angels only worship God, and here we see them worship Jesus, that tells us that Jesus is God. And if that weren't enough to show that Jesus is better, if proving his identity is not enough, the author goes on to show that what Jesus does is different than the angels. The angels are servants, Ministers, messengers. He makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire, but of the sun, he says. And this is taken from Psalm 45, which is a a wedding psalm. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with oil of gladness beyond your companions. Jesus is not God's messenger. He possesses a kingdom and he rules over that kingdom with authority and is an anointed bridegroom. Angels, once again, they don't have kingdoms or that kind of authority. Any authority an angel has is just as a spokesman for God. They are his creations. They are not his sons. And so then the author closes out this section by showing the power of Jesus, how he laid the foundation of the earth and that the heavens are the work of his hands. And while all those things will pass, Jesus is eternal. He is not created. He is eternal. He's been with the Father in eternity. And he will have no end. And this final piece of evidence to show that Jesus is better is perhaps my favorite. As, as if all these other reasons were not clear enough, the author asks that a rhetorical question. And to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool for your feet are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who inherit salvation angels are ministering spirits their job is to serve god and to do his will and they don't ever sit in his presence they're always flying around the throne room of god In Isaiah, you hear them just singing constantly, in eternity, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. But Jesus, Jesus sits, he reclines at the right hand of the Father. The highest honor a king could bestow was to allow you to sit at his right hand. And this is saying Jesus has the highest honor in heaven. These verses all make much of Jesus. And so to think that Jesus is just a get-out-of-hell ticket or a nice guy that makes things better is to completely miss the point of the Old and the New Testaments. Jesus, this Jesus of Nazareth, is God. This Jesus was create, has created the world and the universe. And everything that has been created, was created, will be created, is sustained and upheld by and through him. This Jesus is fully God and fully man, this Jesus died a horrible death. And he did that on the cross for us in order that the debt that we have incurred by our sins, like Eric was saying, our sins have separated us from God. And he died for our sins that we might have them erased and we would have that righteousness of his perfect life. And he would apply that to us. And so in demonstrating that Jesus is better than the angels, the author demonstrates to the Jews that not only is he better, but Jesus is one with the Father. As we heard last week, the exact imprint of the Father, of his nature. And so it's no wonder that Jesus told his disciples, if you know the Father, you know me. Think about that. How unapproachable God is because of his sheer holiness. How the angels in heaven have to cover their eyes because they can't bear to look at him because he's so incredibly holy. It's like staring into the sun. You can't help but to squint. But because we can know Jesus, we can know God. We can know our heavenly Father. Well, we've seen how this passage involves something old and something new. So let's, let's consider something borrowed. Let's take what we've learned and borrow it. Apply it to ourselves and, and see how it lines up with our walk. After all, like Eric said, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all turned aside from God's way and were led astray. I remember in the late 80s and uh, early 90s, There was a time when it seemed like angels were almost a fad. You know, Touched by an Angel was a popular TV series, and they had all these books in the bookstores. Christian bookstores, regular bookstores. Everybody had tons of books about angels. And some of the books were theologically sound. Some were questionable, and some were just out-and-out heresy. And while it isn't wrong to read about angels and to find them interesting, the danger the danger is when they become more important, more interesting than Jesus. I mean, what would it say about a systematic theology book where the section on the personhood and the work of Jesus is a couple pages long, but two-thirds of the book is taking up talking about angels? It wouldn't be a good sign. And so while today, we may not necessarily struggle in revering angels, but we can revere other things other than Jesus. You and I have wandering hearts, drawn to plenty of pretty shiny things, comfortable things, things that we're familiar with, things that don't make us stretch, make us feel uncomfortable, things that draw us away and lull us to a dullness of spirit, away from the truth, away from Jesus, the giver of truth. Oh, we're okay as long as those things that we love are going down the same path as Jesus running parallel with him. But what happens when that thing that I love goes away from Jesus and those paths diverge? Where do you go to? Do you stay with Jesus? Or do you you drift with that thing as you've cut anchor from Jesus and you're lulled into that sense of security that you're not really aware is happening? There's a danger for us as believers, if we venerate anything more than Jesus. Some of us have been in the faith a long time, and it just seems like such a long walk. This life, it's tiring. And we can cognitively affirm the gospel and the truth of the Bible, but Jesus just seems so far away. He seems at the end of our life, and we have many more years to go. So maybe it's okay to relax a little, let our guard down, get comfortable not pursue him as we should because after all it is going to be a long time until i have to meet him i have time to get ready or maybe we have the opposite maybe we are young in our faith and we have professed that we love jesus and we are following him and walking with him but the former way of our living is still our current way of living we still would say that our lives and our hearts are with jesus but we can't help but to try and straddle that fence and have the world and Jesus too. In both of these cases, we have moved Jesus from central and essential to optional and peripheral. We've cut our anchor and set ourselves adrift. As part of the elder process, we were uh, asked to go through a series of questions that poke and prod on our lives to help us see areas where Jesus may not be better. And I'd be lying if I said that it was an awesome process. It's, it really causes you to examine your heart and just to cry out with Paul in Romans, what wicked man am I? What hope do I have? Well, you have Jesus. And for me, I've noticed a strong inclination towards the certain, the, the concrete, you know, knowing everything that's going to happen you know, having my finger on the ball. And I don't like the thought of not kind of being aware of the future, not necessarily even having a job or, or, ha- or not having a roof over my head or not being prepared for the future. I want to be on the, in the know so that I can prepare. And so I need to be on guard. I need to watch my life so that Jesus will always be better than all those things, better than my need to have certainty in life, so that when those paths diverge, I'm going to stick with Jesus. Because if I don't think that way, if I think I'll take Jesus as long as I can be comfortable, as long as I can be certain, I'm okay with Jesus. If I think that, the G in my God goes from uppercase G to lowercase G. And his son isn't going to be any better. I'll have set myself adrift. So take a moment, ask yourself, what is it in my life, what are those things that I'm really comfortable with, that even though I'm, I'm walking in line with Jesus, what are those things that I'm really comfortable with, that if my path diverged from Jesus, what are those things that might tempt me to cut anchor from Jesus? Whether you're a a seasoned Christian, a babe in Christ, or anything in between, we all have that sinful inclination towards wandering, to drifting. And to fight this, we have to guard our walk. As it says in Ephesians 5, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time because the days are evil. Just because you start off walking safely it doesn't mean that you're going to continue to walk safely. You have to guard your walk and be mindful of where you trod. I was on the, uh, the track team in college. It was, it was a very small college, so I was actually able to make the team, which was a, a good thing, and I enjoyed myself. But I always remember, it was probably the most embarrassing moment in, in my athletic college career, My other sermon was the most embarrassing moment in my high school athletic career, so we'll just continue with the theme. We were at a meet, and it was uh, winding up, and I'd finished my events. I was in the the field events, so you get to lay around and have fun. And uh, we were waiting for a few more things to finish up, and everybody was kind of watching the hammer throw. Uh, And now, if you don't know what that is, the hammer throw is, is really something to behold. It's a 16-pound ball of steel attached to a cable with a handle. And you've got these huge juggernauts of men. And the ball's on the ground, and they grab the cable. And they're in this little, like, round circle. And they pick it up, and they start going around. And they spin around and around and around, and they let it zing. And it goes flying through the air, and it hits the ground. And while it's flying through the air, it's going ching, 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 ching. And, and, and the field is shaped like a V. Right, So that when they throw it, if it goes off a little bit, it just kind of continues down onto the field. Well, as impressive as it was to, to watch all this, I was getting hungry, so I decided to go back to the bus. And so I simply got up from, from the sidelines, and I started walking back to the bus. And as I'm walking, I'm hearing the crowd cheer, da, 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 da. and then I, get, I start to notice um, there's something just ever so slightly different about the way they're cheering, and then I and then I think uh, it's not really a cheer; it's a it's a yell. That's that's what it is, and that's really strange. And so I, I look over at the people, and I'm like, "That's odd. They're not looking at the dude throwing that. They're they're looking at me. <laughs> well, why is that?" And then, right as I'm about to ask myself this, I hear ching 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 <laughs> flying through the air, and it's it's like that aha moment, right? Everything comes together and I'm terrified and I'm thinking oh my gosh is it better to run towards it and get hit in the face or run away and get hit from behind and I could really die (laughs) and and so just in a a spurt of adrenaline I just took off running and it landed like 15 yards behind me and I didn't stop I just kept going (laughs) because it was so embarrassing but I wasn't paying attention to my walk, and it nearly cost me my life. I started out fine. You know, I was on the sidelines. I was fine, but I wasn't paying attention to where I walked. I was too hungry for something else, and I walked right into danger without realizing it. We all need to constantly affirm the lordship and superiority of jesus christ we need to look down and see that we are firmly planted in the gospel firmly abiding and walking and standing in his truth and we can't do that alone we cannot do that alone we need others in our lives to walk with us to be able to correct us to encourage us to keep from straying off that path of of safety into danger And it wasn't bad for me to want to go to the bus to eat. But the path that I took was wrong. These Jewish believers thought that they were seeking God the right way. But they were going about it wrong. It wasn't like they knew Jesus was better and they just chose to embrace the law. They had good intentions, but they were wrong. I can be as sincere as possible. but, But if I'm mistaken... I am sincerely mistaken. If we don't check our walk, that Jesus is better than anything. If we don't have others in our lives to walk with us in that, it becomes too easy to drift from the gospel, drift from the truth. If we don't think much of Jesus, if Jesus is just some abstract guy we prayed to so we wouldn't go to hell, but other than that, we have no relationship with him or his church We can expect the same problems that face these Jewish believers. We can expect to drift from the truth, to harden our hearts, to be drawn away from the shiny things of this world, the cares of this world. We can expect to think little of his bride, the church, and of fellowship. And we will see little reason or passion for sharing our faith. We talk about that which we are passionate about. And if Jesus is not first in our hearts, he will not be on our lips. This is all well and good, you may say. I get that, yeah. You're, you're saying to yourself, I get that. Yes, Jesus is better, but he doesn't always feel better. You, know, you, you may be saying that this is just some sort of quick fix cliche. You may be saying, how do I say Jesus is better when I'm sick of being sick and there's foods that I want to eat and I just can't eat them and I just want to have a normal meal? Or I have ongoing conflict in my life and bitterness is the new normal. How do I say Jesus is better when I'm dealing with the hurt and the pain that someone has wronged me and there is no justice coming? Whatever it is in your life. How do you say Jesus is better when your heart tells you otherwise? It's safe to say we've all been there. That's one of the reasons why fellowship is so, so important. So that when you're there in that moment, in that spot where your heart is causing you to drift, someone in your life can speak truth to you, throw you that life-saving line, Jesus is better, here's why, come with me, let me show you. Friends, let's keep believing that Jesus is better. Let's keep telling each other that Jesus is better because he is. Our hearts are going to lead us astray, but God's word rings true at all times. God's word tells us that no eye has seen or ear heard nor heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. I don't know about you, but I can imagine heaven being pretty awesome but it's just unbelievable to me that this verse is telling me as much as I can imagine it being awesome, that's nothing. That's what awaits us. That's the hope that we have. And it's found only in and through Jesus. I think one of the reasons we don't make much of Jesus is because we go out into this world, we go about our lives, we're hungry. And we don't fill ourselves up on Christ. And so we go out into this world and everything looks so appetizing. We fill up on distractions, and we lose our appetite for Christ. When I first went away to college, I remember just that, that newfound independence: a shopping for food at the grocery store for the first time and thinking, I can have anything." And the worst part was I had an empty stomach. I was in the baking aisle, and I was struck by that notion that I could buy whatever I wanted, and everywhere I looked, I saw things I needed. I need ho-hos and ding-dongs, ice cream sandwiches, yellow cake. I really need some yellow cake. And so when I got home to my apartment, I mixed up the cake batter, and I thought, you know, my mom only ever let me lick the beaters. I'm going to take this a step further. So I thought I'd just take a little drink of the batter. Well, suffice it to say, I had a little too much batter. And, and the cake turned out like all lopsided because some of the batter was missing. Uh, and I'd had my fill, and I couldn't really tell you how it tasted because it was a long time before I had yellow cake. But had I been better prepared to shop, had I eaten something beforehand, I wouldn't have bought all that stuff that I did. I wouldn't have filled myself up on something that was going to make me sick. And all of these things certainly wouldn't have had the appeal that they did at that time. But when our hearts are not filling up on Jesus, they are filling up on something else. And if it isn't Jesus, it isn't good for your heart. It's that simple. Not Jesus, not good. So to take much of Jesus, to be filling up with Jesus, we need to be sustained by him seek him in fellowship with one another seek him in his word seek him in prayer and in fasting and so we've seen something old something new and we've borrowed and applied this to our lives and in doing this we see the faithfulness of god which leads me to our close let me end our time with something blue that rhyme something old something new something borrowed something blue Like I said, it refers to the things that a bride is supposed to have to have a successful marriage. Something old is continuity. We have that continuity in the Old Testament, the foundation for God's plan of salvation for his elect, Jesus, in the Old Testament. And we have something new is optimism for the future. We have that in the new covenant, the guarantee that Jesus' blood is supreme, and it gives us unmitigated hope for the future. Something borrowed is said to be borrowed happiness. We won't find true happiness unless we borrow or apply the truth of Scripture to our life and our walk. And ultimately, that bride of Christ is richly adorned in all of these things because of something blue. Something blue, that symbol of fidelity, purity, and love. All of this we have because of something blue. The faithfulness, the purity, the love of our triune God. God the Father Jesus, his son, and the Holy Spirit that dwells in us. All of this we have because Jesus is better. As his bride, he gives us his righteousness, his right standing before God so that we can be part of that family of God and appear to him without blemish. And so as we begin to prepare for communion, I want us all to examine ourselves. Am I in danger of drifting? Does my life demonstrate that Jesus is better? If you feel like you've drifted, please know that if you are in Christ, you will never be able to drift further than the reach of his lifeline. Call out for help and he will throw you a line and pull you back in. Involve other Christians in your life. Get involved in a community group or speak to Justin up front after the service. But whatever you do, Know, live, preach to yourself that Jesus is better. Every week here at Sojourn, we celebrate the Lord's Supper. As we're about to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we remember that on the night that he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. There is nothing magical or mystical about this bread and grape juice. The beauty is in what they point to. It's like that Old Testament. It points to something. And when we eat of this bread and drink of this cup, we proclaim and remember that the sacrifice of Jesus was counted worthy by God. We proclaim that Jesus is better than the angels, better than the law, better than our past. And we do this together. We do this as a community of believers in fellowship with one another And so as awful as that dying on the cross was, we remember it and we celebrate it for that is how we were brought into the fold of God. The good news and the hope that we have from this is that because Jesus was a better sacrifice, the grave could not hold him and death had lost its sting. And so with this in mind, take a moment, examine your heart, preach the gospel truth to yourself that Jesus is better and when you then you can come forward and get the bread and juice and what Jesus has done on the cross will be spoken over you. And if you've not put your faith in Jesus, this bread and this juice, this act of communion, they don't doesn't do anything for you. The Lord's Supper is an act of worship for those who have placed their hope, their trust, their faith in the sufficiency of Christ's blood to turn away God's wrath. And so if you've not placed your trust in Jesus, while we're incredibly thankful that you could be here today, please understand this act of communion is our corporate and individual yes and amen to what Jesus has done for us. And so instead of taking communion, please take this time to ask God to illumine your heart, open your eyes to the truth that Jesus is better, and to make clear your need for a Savior, and allow you to take Christ and know that Jesus is better. Let's pray. God in in heaven, we thank you, Lord, for your word, for your son, for the way that you have used all of these things in all of history to point to the absolute supremacy of Jesus, to point to yourself, to draw a people that did not know you to know you, to draw sheep that are astray to the great shepherd. Father, I pray that in the days and weeks to come, that you would press mightily upon our hearts, turn hearts of stones to hearts of flesh that would know that you are better in all circumstances, that would embrace you at all times and in all things and walk on the path of righteousness. Father, I pray that as a church community, we would live and walk with one another in such a palpable way that encourages one another and says to the world, what do they have? I want what they have because it seems better. We ask this now in Jesus' name, the better name. Amen. Amen.